Sometimes I write something and I'm like, oh, for sure, this is it. This is the great book that I'm going to write next. And sometimes my agent or my editor will be like, mm, no, no one's going to. That's a weird topic. Maybe not that. I had somebody send me a calculator. How many books do you have to sell to earn out your advance? Mm-hmm. And I plugged in the numbers and I was like, oh, my God, I guess the answer is never. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> never amount of books. Open books all the way just like you would expect from two of the most TMI, no holds barred, hilarious writers in the business, which is why they're so beloved. That was three-time New York Times bestselling memoirist, Jenny Lawson, with one of my dearest writing sisters, Laura Belgray. She's here on tour for her debut memoir, the national bestseller, Tough Titties, on living your best life when you're the effing worst. I have been so excited to foster this literary love match. I knew Jenny was at the top of Laura's wish list to join us here. And I figured as a bookseller, Jenny owns the Nowhere Bookshop in San Antonio, that she'd have heard the buzz on Laura's debut, even if she hadn't yet had time to read Tough Titties. I also surmised that as one of the world's top bloggers, Jenny was probably already a fan of Laura's award-winning blog at Talking Shrimp. Well, yeah, I was right to trust my instincts. The rest, I hope you'll find, is podcasting magic. Maybe you've noticed I've been a little slow lately in releasing new episodes. I've taken time off to travel with my husband, work on our barn, support my clients in getting book deals, and quite frankly, recover kind of an ongoing daily practice from being an empath living in today's world. Maybe you know something about that. But with these two gals being so much fun, I was inspired to run back into the recording studio to release three episodes at once. A little backstory, we were laughing before we started taping, something about Jenny getting mailed a box of dildos at the post office, you know, how you do. And you're going to see that we reference that later. So that's what that is. Okay, chances are you're already a fan of one or both of these ladies and know a lot about them. But here's a quickie rundown. Laura Belgray is the co-creator of The Copy Cure with Marie Forleo. She's been featured all over the place. Fast Company, Money Magazine, Forbes, Business Insider. She actually started writing in television for Bravo and Fandango, FX, NBC, HBO, USA, Nick at Night, Nickelodeon, TV Land, VH1, oh my gosh, and more. She tells the funniest stories in Tough Titties about how she got those gigs, even as a slacker or the effing worst. Laura lives with her husband in New York, and except for college, she's never lived anywhere else. Not coincidentally, she does not drive. Jenny Lawson, a.k.a. The Blogess, whose tagline is, like Mother Teresa, only better, (laughs) has a readership of millions of people because where else can you go to find funny, upbeat, dark humor mixed with brutally honest periods of mental illness? I am a longtime reader of her blog, Snort Laughing with My Husband Over Her Antics with Her Husband, And one of the happiest days of my career was just recently. Jenny recommended beautiful writers on the homepage of her website where it still sits. 
calling it a page-turning beach read doubling as how-to, hashtag magic. Holy Moses. Jenny's New York Times bestsellers, which include Broken, Furiously Happy, and Let's Pretend This Never Happened, are a breath of fresh air. Whether you consider yourself totally sane, a little off, or as fragile as a teacup in a tornado. Let's get started with this art of the Overshare Love Fest. I think you'll find a few fun shockers here. And yes, we do talk about titties and more. Plus several audio clips, some of my favorites. You know what to do if you've got little ones listening and need to use your earphones. Welcome. Laura, I have to say, reading your book, it was so funny. I put it off too long because I kept, <laughs> was like, I want to read it. I want to read it, but I want to have time to read it. And I had all this other stuff going on. And so finally, I sat down and I was like, okay, I'm just going to read the first chapter. And I couldn't put it down. And it was so great because of what you share. All the TMI yeah. that you shared was so different than my life, but I relate to it so much. I just want to say thank you for sharing your story because I really, really enjoyed it. I wish I would have read it two months ago when I first put it on my to-be-read pile. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you saved it for the right moment. Thank you. I'm like smiling too hard to even respond. Thank Aww. you. <laughs> Laura, what is your favorite thing about Jenny Lawson? Well, I have looked up to Jenny Lawson as the bloggist ever since I started my business. She was the person whose work I was told I must go look at because I didn't know what I was doing. And I was like, can I write this way? Do I have permission to write this way? <laughs> and it's like, look at this person who has made a career out of writing this way, out of being herself yeah, and being hilarious on the internet. Jenny has been a role model to me for a very long time. I mean, this was starting in 2009. That's when I got into this very strange nebulous online world we call, or I call the space. And she is one of the gods of it and remains so over time. And I love her contribution to literature, to the book world, the author community, the reading community, and then just her writing is magnificent and hilarious. Hilarious. And vulnerable and wonderful, honest. Laura, your subtitle is so fantastic. <laughs> Living your Thank best you. life when you're the effing worst. And that is right there out of the Jenny playbook. Exactly. It's funny because even now to this moment, I still feel like I'm fucking up everything all the time. <laughs> and so it's always nice to hear when, when I'm like, oh, okay, people still like me because there's always that. I don't know if it ever goes away, if it's just imposter syndrome or what it is, but I constantly feel like oh, I have completely screwed everything up. No one likes me anymore. I'm not doing things the right way. I'm not following the rules. And I constantly find myself second-guessing everything that I do. So I really appreciate hearing that. Oh, Thank you. <laughs> you are a beacon to fuck-ups everywhere. And people right? who feel like they are apologizing, no matter how successful they get or how many people look up to them, feel they are apologizing all day long for all the things that they are doing wrong and letting slip through the cracks. And oops, that's on me. Oops, sorry. I'm just seeing this now is the thing that I write <laughs> so many times a day when I'm seeing it for the fifth time. Oh, yeah. I had a guy come out yesterday to help me with my sound system 
So he walks me through every step and I'm writing it down and I videotape him so that I can remember it in case my notes aren't correct. And then I knew enough about myself to say to him, hey, any chance you can join the Zoom call at the beginning, just in case? And he said, sure. And I thought, oh, but I have 24 hours. Of course, I'll have written down everything he said once again, make it super legible. I'll go quietly through every step like a half hour before the call. No, none of that. Forgot it completely. I was just out with the horses, walking the dogs, just taking my damn time. And then like 10 minutes ago, I'm like, oh, wow, I don't remember the tech. Wow, that's really interesting about my brain that something this important to me would just fly out of my head. It reminds me, Jenny, of how you say to your husband, I have a hole in my head. Help me. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Things are just falling out. Left and right. And poor Victor, because he, my husband is a very, very type A, super oh, yeah. detail focused, very oh, yeah. get the job done, get the job done. What are your goals? What is this? How's your timeline? And I don't do any of that. And so, poor thing, it is so frustrating for him. But at the same time, it's so frustrating for me because I don't work in the same way. My brain works in a very different way. And it's helpful to have a type A person who doesn't have ADHD, who doesn't have (laughs) all of the things that I'm dealing with, to just say, okay, here's what you need to do. Here's step by step. But only if he takes into account the fact that I'm going to listen to that and go, that sounds really smart, and then never do it. Oh, (laughs) oh, 100%. My husband and your husband are a lot alike. They're guys who know how to run organizations and they come in physically responsible in everything they do. And (laughs) that is so laughable to me. But I also feel like this really is a dualistic universe because I like to color code my files. I am not disorganized in a lot of people's opinion. But to me, I'm a hot mess. Do you guys ever feel that way? I mean, we're pretty accomplished people. So it's not like we're completely effed up. But at the same time, life is impossible. Yeah, I don't have that half, the color-coded half of me. No, not at all. But (laughs) I have a ambitious, caring half. And maybe if there's anything I'm fastidious about, it is my writing, making sure that I like it, making sure that it's good. But otherwise, everything's a mess. And uh, (sighs) Stephen, my husband, sends me to the store for two items. I always come back with one of them. (laughs) Jenny, you say that you have managed to fuck up shit in shockingly impressive ways and still be considered a fairly acceptable person. So what's your secret? How do you keep the acceptable going while you're shockingly fucked up? I think it comes back to intentions. (laughs) People can kind of look and say, okay, is this person intentionally messing up or is this person like really trying hard? And I think people can tell that, first of all, I'm really trying hard. I think the other thing is usually everything that I make mistakes about, or at least that I write about, I'm the punchline. And I think that's a really a big thing that has helped people to say, oh, okay, I really like you. You're my friend, even if we haven't met, because they know that... If there's ever anybody I'm going to be mean about, it's going to be me. And even then, I'm still not going to be mean. I'm still in the end going to say, listen, I know I hate myself sometimes, but I also need to forgive myself because I'm doing the best that I can. Nobody else can be Jenny like I can be Jenny. Nobody else can be you like you can be you, for better or worse. So I think it just comes back to intentions. 
That is so good. Here's a treasure, one of a few I'm adding from Jenny's audiobook for Broken. By the time that you read this, I will have gone through years of writing is so lonely and I hate everything and everyone. I will have gone through the writing period when I tell my husband that real writers write drunk and edit sober. And then later the editing period when I tell him I have edited this notion and have to write drunk and also edit drunk. And even the period where I just lock myself in a room and force myself to write and it is glorious and beautiful until I wake up the next day and realize it's garbage and delete everything. I'm going to turn off my camera so I'm not distracted by myself here so I can better look at my notes. So hold on one sec. I'm going to get rid of my face. Stop video. Is that how we do it? Yay! That's it. Okay, so you guys, can, <laughs> you guys can't see me. That offers such comfort. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You're, quote, looking at your notes. Who knows uh, what, you, what you're really doing right now? Exactly. Box of dildos <laughs> comes out. Box of dildos. <laughs> oh, my God. I feel so bad for that reporter who was jacking off on CNN and everybody uh, could see it because I thought, there's so much we do that we wouldn't want people to see. <laughs> oh, yes, for sure. There was a long Zoom I was on once where we all left to then go to Clubhouse. And then oh, I yeah. came back and realized, I know, Clubhouse. And then I came back to the Zoom, realized that my camera was still on and the Zoom was still on. And I was like, wait a minute, what have I been doing in front of my computer? I have no idea, but could well have done something really unseemly that I didn't want recorded or watched back later. Uh, who knows? Oh, yeah. I have a client. She is one of the world's top lawyers. And I can't tell you the avenue of law because it's just too damn prestigious and people will know who she is. But she and I were on a Zoom call. We were working on her book proposal. Two other people came in on the call. We were all having a great time because they were past retreat people. And so she knew them and she was on vacation and she was in a swimsuit. And at one point, she moved the computer so that we all we could see was her crotch. And oh. granted, it was in a suit. But if one of the world's top lawyers who has to be so careful in her life can do this online, what hope do the rest mm -hmm. of us have? Hence, your camera is off. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Okay, Laura, you say being inappropriate is your birth sign and that being fully expressed keeps you going? I have been an inappropriate person since I could speak. <laughs> and one thing that's in my book comes to mind, which is handing in an assignment. We had to do a current events assignment. And we had to write a summary of any article from any periodical. And I said, any? And the teacher <laughs> said, yeah, go for it. And so I did my summary on Penthouse Forum <laughs> and made great use of the footnotes and quotation marks, the man in total has four raging hard-ons and one less raging hard-on. And I used all the proper citation and everything and got to like check plus plus on that with a comment. Maybe next time try the New Yorker. But <laughs> that's just a typical example of the license that I would take whenever given it. And I'm now an aunt too, two kids. I have a nephew and a niece who are 13 and 11, respectively. And I'm pretty much known as Aunt Inappropro. In a pro pro. <laughs> yes. 
I remember maybe a year ago, I was writing a blog post and I think it was on writing retreats. So it was informational. My husband and I were driving and I said, I need a good headline for the blog post, something that people will want to open. And he said, just call it the G-spot. And I said, the G-spot? It's not about anything sexual. He goes, that doesn't matter. Tie it in. So I tried it just to see if it would help my open rate. I was writing about the retreat. And then at some point I said, what's this have to do with the G-spot? I'm coming. Wait, I meant, I meant that's coming. I am telling you, it killed. It was by far my highest opening rate, which made me think about your copy cure program with Marie Forleo. Mm-hmm. You guys have a really great part in the copy cure where you talk about headlines. Laura, in the book, you say, initially, when you first started your blog, you would have these headlines and then write about something that had nothing to do with the headline. Yes. You always want to make sure that you tie back to it in some way, because otherwise it's just clickbait. And then you're like, oh, yeah. I still haven't seen what this person from Full House looks like now. <laughs> <laughs> clicking through, no clicking through. This is what I clicked for. You want to give people what they clicked for in some way that's satisfying. Sure. So you have to tie back to it in some way. But I really like to just write the most attention-grabbing subject line or headline that I can. And as long as it's at least tangentially covered, related. Yeah. Did writing for television help you do that? Probably, because I'm very attuned to People who are zoned out and you're not going to get their attention unless you do something that's startling, a pattern interrupt, something that gets them out of their coma. So yeah, I always have that in mind. Yeah. How about you, Jenny? How do you come up with headlines? It really sort of depends on what mental state I'm in. (laughs) If I'm in a depression, which happens a lot, my blog headlines, my chapter headlines, they become very simplistic. If I'm on the up and up or I am even in sort of like a manic state, they become very long and sort of ridiculous (laughs) to the point where it's not uncommon for my title to be sometimes longer than the actual post itself, (laughs) which seems so ridiculous. But at the same time, it's like, well, if you can do it, why not do it? Why not experiment? Because if I'm not doing things that make me entertained, then... Why even do it? It won't be fun anymore. Mm -hmm. When I think of the word TMI, the header of this episode is TMI Queens. Is there a time where you are not comfortable sharing something? And how do you know the difference? I would say what I wouldn't share, wouldn't feel comfortable sharing is my current personal or sex life. And that's a can of worms I don't open. There's somebody else involved, for one. And two, it's just something that I feel private about, yeah. even if there weren't somebody else involved. So yeah, that is one place where I don't go and won't go. And everything else is pretty much open season. I have no problem sharing anything about my past, especially because I see myself in the past as a different person like a different character. I can talk about her all I want. I can gossip about her. I feel the same way. When Zibby Owens had me on her podcast, she was like, oh, Linda, I felt bad for you in your book. She said something about how like, oh, Linda, you were so hard on yourself. And I was like, really? I thought telling those stories was hilarious. 
I was laughing at my desk talking about all the crazy shit I did to get published and all the networking fails and the ways I totally embarrassed myself. I thought that was great fun telling those stories, but I think it hurt her. She was like, ouch. (laughs) I was like, what? That's a character. That's not me. I don't do that crazy stuff anymore. To me, that's just so much fun to share those. So I was thinking about you with the blowjob stories, Laura. Oh my gosh. So I'll tell you a funny story. I'm listening to your book and I had to walk away. The dogs were doing something. I left the room. I was gone for like 20 minutes and the blowjob stuff was all on. And my husband, (laughs) my husband the next morning, he was like, so um, what were you listening to last night? I was like, what's the matter? And he goes, well, that girl sure liked to give a, a lot of blowjobs. <laughs> blowjobs I gave in the early 90s. These days, everything's a journey. You're not in menopause. You're on a menopause journey. Buying a house? Real estate journey. On Top Chef? Pack your knives and go means they haven't seen the last of you. But it is, alas, the end of your Top Chef journey. Even while I was living it, I considered the following chapter of my life a phase I just had to work through. But it takes on a halo of achievement and purpose if you call it a journey. So let's go with that. My blowjob journey. How does your husband feel about that chapter? He skipped it. (laughs) The dedication says... To your parents. You know, mom, yeah, mom... Maybe don't read chapter nine. That is chapter nine. Dad, if you're up there, maybe you too. Skip it. And my mom went right to it. Apparently, that's the first chapter she read. Me and everybody else too. My husband, meanwhile, has not read that or the chapter called He's Never Going to Leave Her, which is about the boyfriend before him, Mary's salsa instructor. And he just instinctively knew there were things that he would wish he could unsee. Oh, and he's right. For sure, drop the towel. (laughs) I hate that guy. (laughs) I hate that guy. How about you, Jenny? What's your gauge for TMI? So when it comes to my personal stuff, I don't have a filter and I don't have a, there's nothing really that I don't share other than one is current, I call them like current hurts. So current hurt would be maybe I turned something in and it got rejected. I would wait until I'm in a better place to talk about it instead of just being like, ah, this thing got rejected. It makes me so mad. And then I'm like, no, I'm, you know what? I need to think on this for a little bit because maybe this happened for a reason. I don't want to react in a super reactive way that later I may go, I get why that was turned down. I need to do it in a different way. Or maybe that just wasn't the right audience. Maybe this, whatever I submitted it to is not the right place for me to be. And they're saving me from myself. So that would be one thing. The other thing is, with me, the biggest thing is I don't share anything about anybody who doesn't first approve it. For example, in particular, my kiddo, anything that I share, whether it's pictures or stories or whatever, I read it to them first or show it to them first and go like, you okay with this? And it was interesting because when they were young, they were like, I don't care, whatever. And then Like middle school, high school, there was an awful lot of like, no, no, even stuff that I was like, this is not embarrassing. I'm not sure what you're, and they're just like, I just don't want you to. And I'm like, okay, all right, no problem. But now that they are an adult, all of a sudden they're like, yeah, okay, whatever. Uh, You can share. Yeah, yes, that's fine. That's fine. 
But it's also interesting because there's a part of me that's like, oh, I, I hope that that same idea of sharing with the other person first, like if I would share, if I wrote up my parents or Victor or whatever, I let them look at it first and just say, is there anything you don't that you're not comfortable with? Luckily, I have such supportive people in my life that they are the first people who will be like, do you want pictures of that really embarrassing thing? We've got them. <laughs> so they're really helpful. But now that Haley is old enough, I'm like, one day they're going to write their own story. And I'm like, I hope that they show it to me first and go, you okay? <laughs> Serious. I feel the same way. I remember even being very conscious of that when Tosh was a little kid. I would see the dysfunction in our family. And I would say to my husband, oh my God, we got to clean this shit up. One day he could write a tell-all. <laughs> I thought, who's going to stop him from using this insane material one day? Basically, you have an undercover agent who's living <laughs> in your house and tapping all your phones. And so <laughs> I'm just like, all right, well, it's out there. I shared my life. They're probably going to share their lives. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> fingers crossed it all works out. Great. Jenny, on the show last time, and I excerpted it for Beautiful Writers, where you were talking about your husband no longer getting to read your books because you just said he was just harsh. Obviously, you let him read, but you said he knows enough to know that the way he gives criticism is actually harmful to me. And it made me think you have other beta readers that you go to first and your agent. It made me think about my husband. I am so hard-headed that I take my stuff to him, especially on road trips, and I'll read it to him thinking he's going to like it, right? It's going to be fun. We're going to share it. <laughs> and invariably, his corporate business brain will be like, well, and here's why I keep going back. He's so damn funny that he always makes it funnier. He always makes it racier. It's totally worth it. If I can get a laugh out of him, which happens, or mm -hmm. I can get a, wow, Linda, that's a great point. I feel so good about myself. <laughs> yeah, Victor doesn't laugh out loud, which makes for a bad beta reader. <laughs> and he can't so, watch that. Oh, he's so bad. The thing is, he's very funny in, in real life. He's, and everybody says this, I'm not being humble. In real life, he's way funnier than I am. Oh my God. But on paper, I'm funnier. And so he'll try to, and most of the stuff that I write about, a lot of it comes from him because he is so funny. But as soon as I try to, read it out loud. He's like, mm, it was fine. But he does the same thing where I'm like, do you like this dress? It's fine. I'm like, well, you just told me that I look like total dog shit. Dog That's shit. what you said. You know? <laughs> like, no, I said you look fine. And I'm like, do you understand what fine means? How do you not know what words mean? And he's like, they mean what they mean. I'm like, they do not know. They're not even close. Oh, yeah. So yeah. So now, yes, a lot of people read it first. And yeah, there are some times when he's just like, you know what, I'll read it when it comes out. Smart. You just reminded me, Jenny, of your style. What I love so much about your writing style is your ability to do these long ass run on sentences that are so funny and so bizarre. And I want to read one and then ask you about it. So it was that scene in, let's see which book, Broken, where you're looking for your phone and you can't find it anywhere you think it's under the house. And so you say, I told Victor that my phone was trapped under the house and that probably we were having an active haunting because only a ghost could have done this. And she had obviously put my phone under the floorboards to lead me to her corpse. But he insisted that was impossible. So I calmly explained, I have Pokemon Go on that phone and I just caught a perfect Snorlax and I will pry 
up these floorboards with a crowbar if necessary. And he didn't entirely believe me because I don't think we own a crowbar. And also I don't have any upper body strength. But then I was like, and you just keep going on. And it defies the rules that we learned in English class. And yet it's so good. So talk (laughs) to me about this run-on stuff that you do. Where did you learn to do this? So basically it is just true stream of consciousness. That's (laughs) the way that my head works. And I went to college for writing. I have a degree in journalism. I basically learned all the rules so that I could break them. And what I think is very interesting is that if I had done it without being able to say to an editor, I do understand AP style. I do understand how we need to do it. I do understand it, but I'm intentionally going to do this. They were so much more likely to say, okay, this hurts me as a copy editor, but I will allow it because you know you're doing wrong. Actual notes I put in my unedited manuscripts that editors had to deal with. Words should go here. I haven't figured them out, but basically just a variation of the 27 letters I haven't decided how to organize yet. I wrote something awesome here, but then the cat unplugged my computer. It was so, so good, though. Can we just put something here that said, you would have loved this? Can I insert a video of, like, a happy baby goat here? Because people love that shit, and I never see that in ebooks or paperbacks, so I don't know. I think it would be pretty revolutionary. We should start that. This is the part where I would easily segue into my point using a very witty and subtle jumble of words that I simply can't think of right now because amaretto is delicious. I think sometimes just learning the rules enough to be able to break them is helpful. The other thing is, what I think is interesting is a lot of people who may really like humor may not like my books because they can't get into the stream of consciousness and the extra long run-on sentences. <laughs> but the people who do get it oh. are like, no one writes like this. This is exactly like my brain. And oh my gosh, it's like we're having a conversation and this is, you see me. Exactly. And so I always say, maybe only 20% of the world would read one of my books and go, oh my gosh, this is fantastic. And the other 80% would go, this is clearly not for me. And I would say, I agree. I'm looking for the 20% of the world that says, what is wrong with my head? Why am I so alone? So that they can come here and be like, oh, it's not just me. That feels so good just even listening to you talk about it because I think all of our brains are fucked up. I mean, I have always considered myself high serotonin, really happy, a morning person and a night person, very, very blessed. And every single day, I feel like I'm going crazy. I can tell you five reasons why humanity won't be alive in five years. I can see every scenario. So I don't know that any of us are okay. Amen. I know one person, maybe. Really? That's it. Who? I, yeah. <laughs> My friend Susie, that's the only person who comes to mind. Oh, who's Susie's actually, great. Yeah. yeah. Susie She's Moore. Susie, you know, Susie imaginary. No, Susie, Susie Moore, right? She might be. Sometimes I wonder. Like, okay, hey, but here's the thing. Up? Here's the thing about Susie Moore. And here's where I think she earned it because she had such a tough childhood. So I think the universe went, okay, now we're going to give you just a happy brain for the rest of time. <laughs> <laughs> Laura, I was so happy when Kelly Ripa just went off on your book at the start <laughs> of the show and just 
laughing about your breast reduction surgeries that never work and your boobs always grow back. (laughs) I want to read this part from your book on page 84 where you say, at least one friend tried to talk me out of having a breast reduction. Why would you change who you are? Because I don't want who I am to be boobs. (laughs) It's just the best line. Jenny, you keep muting yourself, but you're laughing your ass off. Oh, okay. All right. (laughs) But that is just so good. Talk to me about the boobs that keep growing back. How the hell? Well, as I mentioned in that chapter, it turns out I'm part starfish. Who knew? (laughs) They just regenerate. I didn't have this. Take them off and they come back. I guess they were just going in that direction and determined to at some point reach my navel, which is (laughs) my mom. Actually, I probably shouldn't say this on a podcast, but I think it's fine. She went into one of those bra shops where they will inevitably tell you right when you walk in that you're wearing the wrong size bra. So she walked in a place called the bra smith and walked in and said, I know I'm wearing the wrong size bra. And they said to her, are you wearing one? <laughs> oh, wow. Terrible. That's oh my God. Say. My genetics, yes, my genetics want to go in that direction where people question whether you're even wearing one. So yeah, I have two breast reductions and <laughs> they came back both times. I'm happy to say, I think this time they've hit a plateau. <laughs> uh, hopefully, hopefully. I mean, I'm only statistically speaking halfway through my life. You say they're low and don't present, which is just they too don't funny. Present. That's just too funny. <laughs> I had the same problem that you had growing up. I had mild scoliosis and I don't know why I don't have it anymore. It's the oddest thing. It just corrected itself, I guess, whatever. But I used to walk with my chest out. People thought I was like trying to show my boobs everywhere I went and the tank tops in whipping wind and cold weather in Northern California didn't help any. But I legit was standing with my boobs out because I had scoliosis. Ridiculous. Yeah. Well, the thing is, people can't imagine that you would want smaller boobs. And they're like, let's show the girls off, you know, when you go into a a clothing store. They're like, well, why aren't you showing off the girls? I'm like, mine are, look, they don't sit right under my chin. Right. Like some people. Or they have that cleavage that starts like right at the collarbone. Mine is somewhere down in the middle. So, you know, I would have to open my dress all the way down to my navel to show the cleavage. It just doesn't work that way. To show so the people girls. think that the girls should present in a certain way, and that's not always true. Just way easier to have smaller ones in life if you have a certain kind. I totally agree. I mean, I don't know, because I've always had big boobs, but I've always really just wanted to have a, a reduction. And but it was funny because I went to a bra shop recently and same thing, walked in and I was like, I know I'm wearing the, and they were like, oh, you're not doing yourself any favors. And so, you know, immediately they're like, can I? And I'm thinking she's going to pull out and she's like, nope, she just starts feet. And I'm like, okay, this is happening. She was like, okay, try this and this and this and this. And then, so I, you know, tried one and I was like, no. And then I tried another one. And then she was like, can I come in? And I was like, yeah. And, and she walked in and she was like, see it. Your bra doesn't fit you right. And blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, this is the one you gave me. This is not the one I don't know. I don't know. I don't know about these women. I'm not sure they entirely know exactly. I think that's just sort of the line. I wonder if they oh, yeah. do, if they're like a church and they just turn and they're like, peace be with you. Your bra doesn't fit you right. Peace right. be with you. Your bra doesn't fit you right. I Jeez. think that's accurate because I have been on a trip, like a retreat with somebody who had a lingerie store. 
And we were not there for lingerie, but I'd come out in a bikini. She'd be like, what's that strap? Is that? <laughs> no, she's like, it's the wrong one. I'll tell you. So yeah, men don't just, have that for you. They, they're not like, oh, the boys are not looking right in that swimsuit. Can I just adjust? Let's, <laughs> let's have this one. Mm, no. Yeah. It's not the same thing. Sir, you have moose knuckle in those pants. <laughs> Possibly of the wrong inseam. <laughs> right? Can I just feel real quick? Yeah. <laughs> feel the yeah. Let's get you into these boxer shorts. Yeah. <laughs> I want to talk about bullying. And how, yes, it hurts so bad when it's happening, but how we've used it to help our art. Laura, you're Deb Fishbone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you said this was a middle school bully. She was your best friend. You said she could sniff out vulnerability like a truffle hog. So talk to me about Deb and how you used her bullying in middle school to fuel your success. First of all, correction. She was not my best friend. She stole my best friend. She oh, always right. had it out for me oh. from day one. She was always mean to me. But then in sixth grade, she managed to steal my best friend, who was the other Deb, Deb Y. So they became Deb squared. That's <laughs> one of the teachers called them. I was like, thanks. That's really helpful. And, um, <laughs> and I got kicked out of my friend group. I was uninvited to Pizza Wednesdays to play Pac-Man and Ms. Pac-Man and they all went to buy leg warmers without me, and it was a miserable year. And, and Deb turned the whole grade against me, even the upper grades against me. It was a really terrible time. On the one hand, I would say it stuck with me for a really long time. And writing this chapter helped me, I think, exercise those demons to the point where I was like, is this even relevant anymore? I'm over it. I didn't even feel it anymore after writing it. I was like, maybe she wasn't so bad, but she was, it was terrible. I mean, this is like almost 50 years of my life that it stuck with me, how she made me feel so unsafe being myself or being different. She solidified this notion that something that I spent the rest of my life trying to, especially my adult life, trying to unlearn, which is that fitting in is everything. Anyone who has an experience like that then realizes that fitting in is the key to life, especially in middle school, being the same as everyone else, wearing the same jeans, wearing the same shoes, not standing out at all. And then you realize later in life, especially if you have a business, and especially if it's a personal brand in this era, that fitting in is the kiss of death. And the key to creativity, any kind of artistic success, any of that, is being yourself and being different and standing out. That is where it's at. So I would say I've, I don't know if I use that experience, except in my book, so much as fight against it, fight against the instincts that still come from it. So I still have this need to be liked. It still feels very dangerous if somebody's mad at me, especially a friend, or if somebody criticizes me. I still feel the sting of it and have to get over it and say, that's okay. It's okay if somebody doesn't like me. Nobody, nothing in this world is for everyone. No brand, no work of art, no song, no movie, no TV show. There's nothing that's for everyone for anything that you love and are so glad you discovered. There's somebody out there or many people out there who will say, eh, not for me. And that doesn't mean it's any less great. So if somebody doesn't like you, it doesn't mean you're any less great. And that's something that's really, that's worth 
reminding yourself over and over and over, even if every instinct in your body wants to be liked by everybody. Jenny, how about you? How did bullying give you courage later in life? I didn't have a ton of bullying. I had one girl who was very, very scary, but she got pregnant and got kicked out of school. And so I didn't have to deal with her again. This was back when people were like, pregnancy is contagious. They can't stay here. (laughs) So I didn't have that so much, but I just never had friends when I was growing up so much. I had people who were nice to me, but I never had, I just never really got super close to anybody. I never felt like I fit in. And if you look at my yearbooks, they all say like, even the elementary ones, they all say like, to a very nice and weird girl. (laughs) To a very creepy girl, I like you. Every single one of them is like, you're weird out loud. And I remember reading that and thinking, yeah, I'm weird. And I think because I realized that I was when I was younger, it helped me to kind of be like, okay, well, you know what? If I'm going to be weird, and for them, by the way, the weird was I was really obsessed with death and ghosts and Titanic. And I had like super hyper fixations back before people would say hyper fixations. And I would be carrying around books on witchcraft and stuff. I'm in third grade and I'm like, have you read the new Stephen King? And they're like, what is wrong with you? And so I think I just kind of was like, you know what, if I'm going to be weird anyway, I should just be my weird instead of having to fit in to the way everything else is. And I would say it was a very lonely, uh, you know, when I was growing up, I was very lonely when it wasn't easy, but it made me who I am now. And so now whenever I see kids and they're still in school, especially like middle school, and and I just want to go, I'm so sorry. I would do anything to get out of there. And I promise you, it's going to be better. You're going to find your people. Everybody who is making fun of you, you're not going to remember 99% of that. They are absolutely not going to remember it. Even two weeks from now, they're not going to remember the terrible thing that they said to you. So try not to take it into your heart and realize that you will find your people. I swear everybody has their people. They're out there. You just have to wait and find them. Oh, totally. I had a really weird experience lately with my bully. It was very healing. So I'm in high school. It's a scene in the book, but I'm in high school and the smarty pants mean girls are in the quad and we're about ready to go in and vote for senior superlatives. And they're like, so Linda, what did you get on your SATs? And I froze because my name had just been put up for posterity in the bottom third of my high school graduating class right by the office. So everyone knew I didn't do well on my SATs, I was sure. So I panic, they're all standing there waiting. And I'm like, I got a 1253. You know, they didn't end in odd numbers. And so they all start laughing. I don't know why they're laughing. I'm trying to figure out why are they laughing? They're all bunched up like a little covey of birds and twittering about it. And then they vote me biggest BSer 20 minutes later. And my father had taken an oath in his early childhood never to tell a lie. And he never told lies. I mean, it was always like, my, that is a haircut or what a baby, <laughs> like really never lie. <laughs> and I aspired to be the same way. And so I tried never to lie either. And now I'm labeled biggest BSer for all time in history. So I carried that pain for a long time. When I initially had the dream about writing, part of it was fueled by, I wanted to show those smarty pants mean girls that I was smart, 
that I wasn't this airhead that they thought I was. But here's the full circle. At our 10-year reunion, the class president who had gotten a perfect 1600 at the time on his SATs, he had put out this whole reason why you got to go to the reunion. And he says, I'm some big best-selling author and yada, yada. And I show up at the reunion and everybody wants to talk to me because now the universe has tipped. Dogs are sleeping with cats. Night is now day. <laughs> I am now the smart person. And he included my website so they knew I was working for a magazine. People knew what books I was. Anyway, it was crackers. And now I'm popular because I'm smart, which never happened. Cut to, I just went to our next reunion, I don't know, 30 years or something. We're all in our late 50s. And she's there. She's like, Linda. She's so excited to see me. And I'm thinking, okay, I guess we're going to hug. We hug. And I had nothing to say to her. I've gotten over it, but she treated me like I was an idiot all through high school. And then I watched her. She didn't talk to anyone. She was just standing by herself a lot with her husband. And it hit me. There was something about her. She was a bit off. And I thought, oh my God, I had such compassion. I thought, what if it was never about me? What if this woman was just uncomfortable like we all were, socially awkward, and she was just making jokes about me or saying little flippant things about me because she was so uncomfortable. And I suddenly had this wave of compassion. And I just thought, I'm glad it happened. I'm glad I used it. I used it as fuel for years. But I'm so glad I'm able to let it go now and feel empathy. You're a bigger person than I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I love you. <laughs> I think one of the things that I always go back to whenever somebody hurts my feelings or whatever, because it clearly it still happens a lot and I'll get negative reviews or somebody will just say something mean to me. And I just always try to remember that I'm sure that I have probably, I know, I remember in childhood doing something and going like, oh, that was mean. And but I'm too afraid to say, oh, you know what? I shouldn't have said that out loud. And instead I'll just laugh about it. And I know that there's probably somebody out there who's like, oh, Jenny was the meanest person to me ever. And who knows? You know? I used and to so, say mean yeah, things I, by accident, trying to compliment people. I was so awkward sometimes in a social situation that I would legit be trying to make somebody feel good. And I would say something so awkward. Thankfully, people would say, did you mean it like that? And I'd be like, no. But I can't imagine how many people didn't say something to me and just think I'm a bitch. I worked in telemarketing for, oh gosh, forever when I was in college. And you'd get people screaming at you all the time and you sort of get used to it. But I am so anxious and I really want people to be happy and I want people to like me. And it was so hard. And so I worked really hard to get promoted to being a supervisor so I wouldn't have to be on the phones. But what that means is that every time that somebody's really mad, who do they want to talk to? They want to talk to me. So I got all of the worst calls. It really bothered me for a while until I realized that these people, especially the ones that were insanely just wanted to scream at me over and over. I just started thinking like, I bet I am keeping their dog from being kicked tonight. I bet their kids are like, thank God somebody else is listening to this and he's not screaming at me. And so every time somebody really attacks me with venom, I just think, I think I may be saving somebody else and I can take this from a stranger and maybe the person in their life can't. Wow. It helps a little. Okay, book proposals. Do you still write them, Jenny? I do, I do. And they don't always get accepted and 
Sometimes I write something and I'm like, oh, for sure, this is it. This is the great book that I'm going to write next. And sometimes my agent or my editor will be like, mm, no, no <laughs> one's going to, that's a weird topic. Maybe not that. And so, yeah. How much time do you spend and how far in the process are you before you get that negative feedback? You don't write the whole thing and like put a million hours into it, do you? I absolutely do. I will write easily 50 pages and the proposal, I'm not supposed to. Even my agent was like, you need to stop doing this. You're wasting <laughs> your time. Don't do this. Oh, that's I, fantastic. I, I was so in love with something and I'm like, maybe people aren't going to understand it. So let me stretch it out so that they can get all of it. And then my agent is like, okay, first of all, editors don't want 50 pages. Of, they will just want like a condensed. Here, this is what well, I from want. from you, from you. If you're an unknown, you better take those 50 true. pages because you have a lot to prove, a lot to show. The whole marketing thing, the chapter summaries alone could be 20, 30 pages. Oh yeah, but my original book you, proposal was like 70 pages long. Yeah. And I worked with my agent for six months on it. But now, now she's like, you know what? Give just something simple so that they can say, okay, we like that, but let's go in this direction. Whereas you've already gone in this direction. Oh my gosh. How about you, Laura? Where do you stand on the book proposal process? Yeah, well, I have no choice. Being a new author, I had to write a proposal, especially because I decided that I didn't know the difference between a memoir and a collection of essays until someone told me, who I worked with, Suzanne Kingsbury. She said, well, a memoir you write the whole thing like you would a novel and you submit the whole thing and collection of essays you sell on proposal. It's like, all right, I'll take number two, collection of essays, because I don't know what this is about yet. I can't write the whole thing and that'll take forever. So I wrote a proposal. It was overwhelming. It's a huge thing to write, especially for the first time and would never have been able to do it without some templates like a couple of model proposals to look at. When Danielle Laporte and I wrote your big, beautiful book plan, and it was a collection of like 20 people's book proposals, which is gold. When you can get an author to give up their book proposal, it's like, oh, praise God. But it's so helpful. To In fact, Danielle and I were just talking the other day. We're like, we should redo it. I think next year we're going to up it. So if you guys want to give us some of your book proposal examples, we'd love to share them with the world. But I think... People are surprised by the fact that authors like you guys, well, especially Jenny, because you have multiple books, you're still writing them. Liz Gilbert told me when she was on with Marie Forleo, and Marie was talking about writing her proposal for Everything is Figure Outable. Liz is like, I still write them. She wrote one for City of Girls. And a lot of people were surprised by that. They're like, didn't even realize that novelists write book proposals. Mary Carr says, of course I write them. You know, I like nice shoes. You get more money if you're going to write a book proposal. Hey, hey, you hear me talk a lot about book proposals in these interviews. That's because I'm kind of obsessed with the business plan beneath a book. The sheer magic to take a writer from unknown to published author and get her mission, her words to people worldwide, that never ceases to amaze me. I'm so grateful to love the process, to be good at it, and to have helped so many people. Visit bookproposalmagic.com, where writers go from idea to done to sold in six modules. 
something that, and I may be totally wrong about this, but it does seem like women have to do that. And I don't see men Men. having to do that. I'm sure that they do. But so many of my author friends who are also essayists or writers, once they get to a certain level, they're just like, no, I just say, this is what I want to write, like a couple of sentences, and then I do it. And I don't think it's as easy for women, especially, and when it comes to essays in particular, they very often will be like, you need to do something in between that's maybe not essays. Whereas I see a lot of men essayists and I never see anybody go, hey, David Sedaris, maybe you need to write a novel, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, Yeah, I haven't thought of that. I remember Brene Brown was embarrassed when I asked her on the show about her book proposals. She's like, oh my gosh, I'm having a moment. I'm a little embarrassed because I always did write them. I studied them. It was so hard. And now I don't. Now I have an idea and I just tell my editor. But the good news as I'm thinking about this conversation, I have a client, a niece, who's written a couple of books with a publisher. And just recently, she had an idea for a third in the series and she called her editor and they were like, yeah, just put a couple of ideas down and let's do it. She ended up changing her mind and deciding to do something else, but they weren't requiring her to jump through hoops. She's not famous. She's very well respected, especially in the business genre, but she's not famous. So that's good news. It doesn't always have to be hard. There's a fiscal aspect to that too, where if publishing is having a really good year, it's not that hard to say, oh, okay, I want to do this. And they're Uh, more likely to say, okay, we've got, yeah, we've got room for you right now publishing, they're struggling a little bit. Whereas you might have had something accepted really easily, maybe five years ago. Now you submit it and they're like, okay, but maybe we're going to give you a a lower advance or this. And I always tell people, it's great. Get a big advance. You absolutely should if you can. But it's okay to not get a giant advance because if you get a really big advance and then you have a year where your book sells okay, it can be considered kind of a flop for them because they're like, oh, okay, well, we made back our money. We don't want to just make back our money. We need to make money on top of it. So I always tell people, don't feel bad if you get a lower advance because sometimes it can work out in your favor. Oh, absolutely. Yes. I had somebody send me a calculator. How many books you have to sell to earn out your advance? Mm -hmm. And I plugged in the numbers and I was like, oh my God, I guess the answer is never. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> never amount of books because it's insane. I mean, yeah. it's a huge number. Yeah. And my advance is not enormous. So it's really well it's because a big the thing. royalty rate on most books mm-hmm. is really small. And I think people yeah. don't understand that. Most authors are making anywhere between seven and 12%. And then you look at bulk discounts and Amazon and It's like five cents an hour you're making for your work. And I'm exaggerating, but I'm not. We all know those cases. I had a client recently get a million dollars for a book and she had a very small social media presence and all of that. But even that, let's say it's a three-year process from start to finish and then she wants to promote it for a couple of years. Even that, she's not making as much as she would make if she had kept her day job at a marketing company. We write for other reasons, right? Sure, some people make a lot of money in the long run, but that's not typically why you want to be here. You want to be writing because you love it, because you can't not do it, because it leads to other things and connections and sales and products and it opens your world. I mean, my first book, 
my advance was $5,000, which didn't even cover the postage that I had used all those years to get all those celebrity interviews. But when I look back on that book and what it opened up for me, it made me millions of dollars. I was able in billable hours and magazine work and teaching work and all of that, none of which would have happened without that book. I could look back and go, okay, well, I made all that money those decades because of that book. So I think there's different ways of looking at it as a success. You don't want to just be stuck on the numbers, but you have to be savvy and smart about it too. But as you can see from this snippet from the audiobook of Tough Titties, being an author is far preferable to one of Laura's early corporate writing gigs. My new boss liked to dial my extension at 9 a.m. on the dot and leave a voicemail making it official that I wasn't there yet. We'll call her Evelyn to protect the identity of someone whose office stank of sauerkraut. Her voice, permanently congested, sounded like she was holding back a sneeze or trying not to breathe you in. Her daily message went, Hi, Laura, it's Evelyn. It's after nine o'clock. I guess you're not here yet. Not good. You're jeopardizing your Friday suburb hours. Beep. End of new messages. Evelyn's office smelled. She kept leftover party platters on top of her mini fridge to nosh on. She hoarded one plastic tub of sauerkraut for a week. Also, old wine with saran wrap as a makeshift cork. It stinks like old salad in there, a friend said. Or hot dog. She threw people under the bus for her mistakes and took credit for their ideas. When my friend Mindy went with her on sales calls and proposed a marketing campaign the client loved, Evelyn would lie, yes, I'm glad you like that, it was my idea. Not a good look, but one you might chalk up to corporate culture. I just have to say, in terms of rewards of writing a book or having the book out there, this is just something I've been wanting to mention, is that Jenny's book, Rogan, the theme of it is about mental illness, depression, et cetera, and has a chapter on TMS in it, uh, trans magnetic stimulation. Oh, right. That's it. That's it. My sister went through that and it didn't work for her. And there are other parts of it that are just so similar to her experience. And I was telling her about it and she's like, oh, I didn't know this book existed. She was so excited to hear about it. And she is about to read it. She just got it. And I know it's going to make her feel so much less alone. And that's got to be so rewarding. I know it's thousands or maybe millions of people who are having that effect, who get that reward from reading your book and multiple books. But that's a pretty big payoff, oh, right? Oh, God, yes. It is. Honestly, that is the payoff. It really has saved my life in multiple different ways. And that's the way that I look at it is like, that's sort of how, I mean, because I make, if you average it out, I make pretty much the same as what I did when I work in HR. But also it takes me years and years in between books. So I have a lot of downtime where I'm just like, please, someone buy a book for the love of God. <laughs> but yeah, that really is the most rewarding part. There are thousands of people that have not committed suicide who've written that they didn't yeah. commit suicide because of Jenny Lawson and your blogs and your books. That's a legacy that you can't even put into any kind of calculator to make any sense of except just thank you, God. It's yeah. lovely, but what's interesting is more often than people saying that it was what I wrote, it was people saying, 
the response to what I wrote. The comments. Like, I saw other people say, oh my God, me too, me too. And then they were like, oh, I'm not alone. Or somebody gave them one of my books and said, this reminds me of you. And they were like, oh, okay. Not only does this book exist, but this person sees me and yeah. says, oh, you seem a little, a little off, but I love the way that you're off. And so, yeah, I would feel very blessed to say that it was me. It's not. It's the community that makes that happen. I read messages from past me saying to keep strong and stay around because once the light is here again, I will know entirely that the lies depression tells are just that, lies. I promise myself that it is worth it, or rather, the person that I was promises the person that I am that it's worth it. And I trust her a little and doubt her a little. She is not entirely reliable. She is crazy and unstable, but she's also truthful. So I hold on and wait. I can feel fully both the good and the bad. I laugh and I cry. I have energy to live. I can see the world and let the world see me with eyes that don't hurt. I see my daughter. I see my friends and my family, and I know how lucky I am. Sometimes it's a promise. Sometimes it's a warning. A warning that the good moments need to be appreciated. That dark comes too, just as light does. I embrace the moments when life is good and strong and grab onto the light without apology. Brighter days are coming. So I think to bring this back to the beginning, the TMI, the thing that gives any of us the courage to tell too much is because there's something inside of us that knows that it's not only going to be healing for us to reveal that information, but that we're being driven to for a greater reason. It helps the greater good. Amen. It does. All right. I love you both. Thank you so much for coming to my party. Thank you for having us. Awesome. Love you back. Bye. had the weirdest thought just now while finishing up this episode. I was kind of feeling guilty that most of you aren't on a first name basis with Jenny or Laura. I recall a time when I felt like an outsider to my big dreams, but I remembered that it took me five years to get Jenny on my podcast. That's 1,825 dinners where even if I'd been saying grace and praying about it, I'm guessing Jesus would have said no. But now, Jenny's been here on the pod twice. And inside of my latest book, Beautiful Writers, which you should totally get, by the way, I think there's some kind of good karma for doing that because Jenny blurbed it and she's in it. And I'm pretty sure she said she'd pay you to buy it. You heard her say that, right? I mean, she has a bookstore and you know she doesn't pay full price. Yeah, you should ask her. As for Laura... I was drooling over her Talking Shrimp courses and newsletters for years. I used to think, I need to go to Malibu and get seafood and I should call my friend Laura to join me, except I didn't have her phone number and she didn't know me and she lives on the other coast. But that's beside the point since Instagram makes it so easy to stalk, I mean DM people, and then boom, one day you're sharing heart emojis. My point is to keep going. This is a long game. 
And some writers who wear their hearts on their sleeve will see your heart on your sleeve and recognize you. Are my sentences getting longer? I think Jenny's floorboard ghost might be haunting me. I want to thank Kevin Baker at Red Room Sound for the late nights working this week, getting these episodes done. Kevin, you are the best. So grateful, especially since I've barely called you since January. Julia McPherson and Kristen Maglonzo turned deadlines into lifelines, and I wish you two could live in my garage. Is Scottsdale too hot? Mostly to you, dear listener. Just thanks. Your time is so valuable. There are so many podcasts for you to listen to. Just thanks. I hope you get a chance to listen to part one and two of my self-pub superstars episodes that also dropped today. If you've ever thought that self-publishing isn't profitable, my chats with two of my clients who are making millions on their books may just turn everything you thought you knew inside out and upside down. So check them out right after you stop to leave a comment and some sparkly stars wherever you listen to us. Jenny said she'll pay you for that too. Maybe because she's broken. I mean, in the best possible way, of course. But clearly the woman is codependent and cannot help herself. Laura? Yeah, not so much. Laura just says, hey, tough titties. Until next time, write on. Write on.